Welcome in to the Barnes on Bama podcast. I'm your host, Owen Barnes, and we've got a really good one in store for you today. Um, we're going to cover some basketball news with recapping last game against LSU, as well as looking forward to this week's game on Saturday against Texas A&M. And then I'm going to end the show with actually talking about a little bit of football. Even though it's here in February, we have had some news on the coaching front with the offensive coordinator, Ryan Grubb. You know, having a two-week stint as Alabama's OC, never coaching a game for us, um, and taking the job as the Seattle Seahawks offensive coordinator. So I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more detail. There's been a new coach named as the new OC for Alabama. So I'll cover that later on in the show, but we're going to start with basketball as always. So for college basketball, for the Alabama Crimson Tide, last week um, was a little bit of an up-and-down week. They went on the road to Auburn early in the week and lost that game. Um, I talked about that in episode one. So in episode, you know, I had recap or previewed the LSU game. The LSU game went fairly like we expected, right? LSU shot pretty well at home, you know, putting up 92 points on offense, which was even a little better than they had put up against Alabama in that first game. Um, looking here, they put up 82 in the first game. So they put up four more points. A lot of that on the back of Will Baker. Will Baker in the first half had a phenomenal half. He had 22 points. Alabama had basically no no answer for him, except for Nick Pringle. Um, we had the, the Nick Pringle game, and this was one of his best games in Crimson, quite frankly. He was the only answer to Will Baker on offense. Uh, he was matching him up, or sorry, to only match up to Will Baker's offense. Uh, Pringle on defense was giving him a little bit smaller guy, you know, Baker at seven foot, Pringle more at the 6'9", 6'10", range, but a really athletic guy that had the weight to stop the post up and had the hops to be able to, you know, defend the hook that Baker was just having some real success with. You know, Baker still hit a hit a three over Nick, and there were a few moments where in that first half where even with Nick, Baker was just going off. Baker had, like I said, Baker had 22 points, and there was looking to be no stopping him. Alabama was able to clean it up in the second half and was able to hold him to just two points. So Alabama definitely made some halftime adjustments. A lot of that I felt like was being a little bit more aggressive with the guards around him. Uh, you saw a couple of steals in the first few possessions of that first, or sorry, of that second half. Alabama had guards that kind of got into Baker and caused him to cough up the ball and lead to fairly easy transition buckets. Another thing that was huge in that game that we saw in the first game and it continued on to the second was Alabama moved the ball phenomenally well. Alabama had over 65% of their shots and in assists. That assist number, let me pull it up. The assist number for that game was sitting at 25. 25 assists for Alabama was on 66% of possessions ended in an assist on the shot. Just huge. The big thing that I think we saw in that game that we're going to have to see in this A&M game, and we'll talk more about A&M very, very shortly, is rebounding. Reitzel talked about how Oates had challenged the guards that in order for Alabama to be a good rebounding team, they were going to have to rebound as a team. You were going to have to have the guards be good rebounders. We've seen that early this year. Estrada's been a really good rebounder for us. Reitzel, many games, has been a pretty good rebounder. Sears, by and large, is a pretty good rebounder. 
But with Alabama playing the smaller lineups, especially with Rylan at the four, they've got to be able to rebound with the smaller guys. And I think this was a really, really good example of Alabama doing just that. They had 19 offensive rebounds. Reitzel had five of them. You know, Pringle I mentioned earlier, he had four of those. The big thing also with those guys is just the scoring output. Reitzel continues to do really well putting up shots. Um, He was six from nine from three. You know, scores uh, 21 points in 36 minutes and just was, quite frankly, looked in complete control and was one of the best players on the court the whole time he was there. Pringle, I mentioned earlier, had one of his best games. He scored 17 points in just 15 minutes on 8 of 9 shooting, 1 of 1 from the line. You know, from a, for a Nick Pringle game, that's about as good as you could expect, right? Nick Pringle isn't a guy that's going to be putting up 15, 20 points a game. So the fact that you got 17 out of Pringle with that level of efficiency in this game was huge. You know, Alabama got a couple of mismatches and got some switches and quite frankly called some really good actions that caused Nick to get some easy alley-oops. But I thought that Nick in general brought the intensity that Alabama really needed Nate talked about, you know, Pringle in that game, that Pringle had a fire to him and a um, an intensity to him to start that game that he thought that Nick was definitely ready to go. And I think that the play on the court absolutely showed that. The other thing that I think that game showed us, and it's something that we've seen out of Alabama, but it happened massively in this game, is their ability to flip a switch. Alabama was down 73-72 to with just under 10 to go in the game. They ended the game on a 33-17 run. They ended up winning by 17 points, and it just was their ability to mount offense into de- – or sorry, defense into offense and move the ball to get the open shot. And then the shooters obviously capitalizing when they got the set open shot. Um, LSU, you know, I talked about it in the pregame thread as well as the podcast last time. LSU gives up a lot of three-point shots. And that's actually something that we'll talk about with A&M as well. A&M, similar to LSU, gives up a large percentage of the shots from the opponent are from the three-point line. They do not run you off the three-point line. They just defend the line as best they can. The problem with that is with a team like Alabama, they have so many guys that can shoot the three, it's not like you can just lock on to one player. Most, you know, especially with the newer age of basketball, Alabama's in a level that's not similar to most basketball teams. A lot of basketball teams may only have, you know, one or two guys on their team that shoot over 35% from three. If I pull up Alabama's numbers currently – Alabama has one, two, three, four, five, six. They have seven guys shooting over 35% from three. And they have one, two, three, four guys shooting over 40% from three. So this is a situation where Alabama just has too many guys to kind of run that style of defense. You've seen that the teams that do better against Alabama, they run them off the three-point line. They don't even let you get the attempts off in the first place. You know, those are your Tennessees. Um, 
of the world. Auburn did that much better at home than they did on the road. Um, these are the type of teams that have a better success against NATO-style systems. LSU is not that team. That's not how they defend. That's not how they play basketball. That's also not how Texas M Texas A&M plays, plays defense. And that's something that's going to come up in this game. And like I said, I'll talk about it here in just a second. Just got a couple more points I want to cover on that LSU game before I move on. The other big thing for me about the LSU game wasn't just their ability to flip a switch, but it was their ability to make adjustments on the defensive end. It's something that Alabama has done before, but Alabama over the past three games has really let big men dominate. You know, against A&M, sorry, against Mississippi State, Tolu Smith absolutely went off. Against Auburn, Janai Broom, and Jalen Williams both went off. In the first half of that LSU game, Will Baker was having whatever he wanted. Now, granted, he was doing it in a different way than Janai Broom does. He was doing it in a different way than Tolu Smith does. But it was still a big man that was getting whatever he wanted. Nate Oates and staff went in and made some adjustments. And those adjustments that they made on the defensive end played a huge role in the second half. As I mentioned, he only had two points coming out, and it wasn't a situation where he had his man beat and then just missed the shot. It was a situation where Alabama wasn't putting themselves in those terrible positions to have a guy get beat, right? And it definitely felt like the game plan may have not have been perfect coming into the game, but they definitely made really, really good adjustments going into the half, and I thought that was something that's really big. Another thing that Alabama did really well is they didn't turn the ball over. You know, it's something that we've talked about with Alabama. You know, if you've read any of the threads or seen anything that I've written on Substack, it's been an ongoing theme with this team. You know, it's an ongoing theme with many of NATO's teams because of the speed they play at, but it's turnovers, right? If Alabama turns over the ball at a high level because of how fast they're playing on offense, sometimes it will put their defense in a bad spot. And so having a lower amount of turnovers, you know, you saw it in the Auburn game, the turnovers were really the key to the game. The turnovers and points off turnovers were the difference in Alabama and Auburn in that game. I think that if Alabama can continue to be in that 10, you know, 12 at the most, but really 10 and lower mark from turnovers, I think that is the sweet spot. I don't think that Alabama is going to have a game um, against a real high major team that's a super competitive game where it's two or three turnovers. They play entirely too fast, and there's entirely too many possessions for that to be the case, and I think that's okay. But I think if Alabama can stay at that 10 you know, range or maybe even a little less, that's really the sweet spot where they are you know, still playing at the speed but playing as controlled as they can. Um, in the offense and really just super efficient on offense. So we've seen for the second game, Alabama scores 109 against LSU. Alabama definitely has LSU's number. Um, they've scored over 100 points against them more than any other team since Nate Oates has been there. Not sure what the difference with LSU has been, but um, Alabama comes off with the with the big win out of Baton Rouge. It was looking pretty tight there at halftime. Um and then was looking again super tight with about 10 to go when LSU took the lead. But Alabama flips a switch and controls the, the second half of the second half and wins the game going away. So let's move to A&M. So I'm recording this on Tuesday night. 
immediately following A&M's heartbreaking loss to Vanderbilt. I wasn't able to catch the first half of the game, but I will say I caught the second half of the game. And so at halftime, the score was 31-30 to by Vandy. Um, it was a very, very tight game the entire time. I know the announcers mentioned at one point no team had led by more than four points the entire game. It was a super back-and-forth game. It was honestly one of the more efficient games that Texas A&M has played from the efficiency standpoint. However, their defense was not great. Um, Vanderbilt was getting open shots, similar to what I talked about with giving up threes. There were quite a few instances where A&M packed the paint and gave up the, the shot on the outside, you know, putting more of an emphasis on getting the rebound uh, if it's missed and blocking the shot down low than actually running somebody off the line. And it led to open Vanderbilt shots. And in quite a few examples, they made the shot. Now, let's not pretend that A&M, you know, just got dominated in this game. Vanderbilt hits a Ezra Mignon buzzer beater to win the game. Um, so this is this is definitely going to change a little bit about this game. I was talking in one of the post or one of the spaces on Twitter last night or sorry tonight, and they I was being asked, hey, you know, what do you think about the game? And in my mind, this actually is probably one of the better things that could have happened for A and M. If A and M beats Vanderbilt, they've won six of their last seven after starting one and three in conference. But they're six of their last seven, and they think they've probably figured everything out. You know, everything seems to be clicking. They beat Tennessee at home. They beat Vandy on the road. And the team's really moving in the right direction after a pretty rocky start. However, since they just dropped the Vandy game, or it's a situation where now the team is going to feel like they have something to prove. If they were in a spot where they had beaten Vandy, if you drop the Alabama game, it doesn't put any type of sore spot or brown mark or whatever you want to call it on the on the season as a whole. However, now that you've dropped the Vanderbilt game, you fall to six and five in conference. If you drop the Alabama game, you fall to six and six in conference. And all of a sudden, that really, really tough schedule that they that Buzz Williams scheduled this year after being ridiculed for the past few years about scheduling, pretty weak. You know, he does come up with a much better schedule this year. And I think that that schedule all of a sudden starts becoming an issue because the wins have to pile up for them to still make the tournament. I still don't think Ven or Texas A&M is in any jeopardy of missing the tournament as long as they take care of their business and continue on. But it is something that starts to become a question with the loss at Vanderbilt because the loss at Vanderbilt is going to be, you know, a not great look on a rock, you know, on a uh, net chart, you know, when you're comparing to other teams, because the loss at Vanderbilt is going to, you know, be quad two to quad three. Being on the road definitely helps, but it's definitely not going to be a good thing for them. So for me, the reason that this, this helps A&M is it just puts their back against the wall. So I think that this becomes a little bit more difficult game. However, I think that Alabama is prepared for it. And I'm wearing my retro logo. I know you, everybody could see the, the sign I have in the back. 
Um, the block logo is my personal favorite. And for the first time in a long while, we get retro jerseys in Goldman. Um, the equipment staff, props to the equipment staff, props to the marketing department at Alabama. They have designed jerseys for retro night slash day. You know, it's an 11 o'clock tip, but it's retro night in Coleman. And so I'm going to pop up the jerseys on the screen um, that was released on Twitter. So these are the jerseys that we're going to see in Coleman on, on Saturday. This is the first look at them. Uh, so they say Crimson Tide on the front, and then the shorts do have the retro logo. You know, Oates has been pretty outspoken that it's his favorite logo. You know, I know it's a lot of other fans' favorite logo. Um, so it's, you know, nice to see that the university is actually embracing it on the official jerseys. I'm not sure if this is something that's going to continue each year, but I'd love to see something like this where they bring back some of the classic jerseys or, you know, once a year they – you know, throw it back to the retro jerseys because I think these are a really, really clean look and are super awesome. So to go with that, in the show notes, I will link the Athletes Thread. Um, so Athletes Threads is the NIL partnership that hosted the, the Lang shirts and some other things. Well, Alabama just partnered with Athletes Threads for Alabama Threads. And if anybody is curious, the jerseys, as well as some additional NIL merch that are specific to the players, it can be found on athletesthread.com. So I'm going to link that, the Alabama collection, in the show notes. So if you're curious or interested, feel free to check it out. I'll throw it in there. So that's going to be for the jerseys for tonight's game. They've also got you know some jackets, some um, hoodies, all sorts of other things on there. So feel free to check it out. From my understanding, the reason the pricing is what it is is the athletes do get a pretty healthy percentage um, of the proceeds of of the actual jerseys, um, as well as commissions. You know, if you're using either their link or their uh, code. So if you are looking to purchase a specific athlete, if you'll look on any of their social media, they're going to be promoting their codes. Uh, you know, whether it be Mark Sears, Latrell Wrightsell, I've seen quite a few guys. You know, putting out their codes, putting out their links here recently. So keep an eye out on that. I will link the main website, but if you are looking to support a specific athlete, if you'll go to their page, that's going to be the best place to get them the most NIL possible off of your purchase. So with that being said, let's look at A&M outside of just, you know, what happened in this last game. When I look at A&M, it has to start with the guards. They've got Wade Taylor the fourth and Boots Radford or Tyrese Radford. Those two guys are are really good scores, but are super inefficient. They are two guys that if given the ability to help dictate the pace and scoring in the game, they can absolutely do it. Against Tennessee, they combined for over 50, and they have the ability to make big shots. The part where they start running into issues is efficiency. And it's the place where I think that Alabama potentially can have the most success. When you look at A&M's Ken Palm page or their stat sheet, they're incredibly inefficient. They're near the bottom 25 in the country in, eff in effective field goal percentage. They're bottom 20 in the country in three-point percentage. And just overall, they are not an efficient team. Where they excel is offensive rebounding. They're number one in the country. They get over 40% of their possessions. You know, they get the offensive rebound. 
So what that tells me is A&M is less concerned about always getting the best shot and sometimes more worried that if they can get a shot that they know they'll get the rebound on, that potentially sets up an easy, um, easy points in the paint off the offensive rebound or an open three off the offensive rebound, which we know Alabama likes to do a lot. So in my mind, this game really boils down to can Alabama rebound on the defensive end? If Alabama can rebound on the defensive end and limit the number of shots and and possessions that A&M has, you know, back-to-back, you know, like the Alabama um, game against LSU, I believe, where Rylan Griffin shoots three threes in the same possession because we just keep getting offensive rebounds, you know, if Alabama limits A&M's ability to do something like that, I think Alabama has a lot of success in this game. A&M does not run you off the three-point line, as I've, as I've mentioned, and I think that's something that's going to come back to bite them. Similarly to LSU, I think that they're not running Alabama off the three-point line. Alabama's probably going to put up somewhere in the 35 to 40 three-point range. Um, it, pro- it may be near that 35 mark because A&M does play a little slower or play much slower, I should say. So I think that, but I think that the three-point number as a whole is going to go up. The thing what I will say is when you're looking at A&M, their numbers are pretty um, pretty normal compared to offense and defense. They're pretty standard. So it's they're 40 on Ken Palm in offense and 42 on Ken Palm in defense, well, at least as of today. So at the end of the day, I think that because of how Alabama plays at home, their shooting percentages at home, the crowd involvement, which I expect to be at an all-time high tomorrow, especially with retro night, um, you know, it's an early tip, but it should be a big game. I think that it will be a really, really big game for Alabama. I think that when you look at Alabama's three-point shooting at home, Outside of the Clemson game, they've only had one game under 35%. And with the number of threes that I suspect that they're going to put up, like I said, somewhere in the 35 to 40 range would be my my guess. I really think that Alabama has a very good chance of winning this game in the 10 to 15 point range. Potentially even more if A&M misses more shots. It all boils down to the rebounding at the end of the day. The rebounding in which we saw was terrible at Georgia. However, I think that Alabama got an off week at the perfect time. And Alabama has two teams that are elite rebounding back-to-back with A&M and Florida. And I think that helps us as much as anything else. Because we have a full week to prepare And you're preparing for two teams that play fairly similarly to each other, right? They both are really, really good rebounding teams. I'm not going to say they're the exact same team by any stretch, but because they both like to do the same things, like crash the offensive glass and, you know, just the different ways that they create additional possessions for themselves, I think that getting the off week when we got it and then being able to build off the off week and use it to work on defense, work on rebounding, work on these things that have plagued the team to a degree partially this year. I think that this is the best 
one of the best circumstances for Alabama for the off week. I think the teams that they're getting when they're getting them is not a bad not a bad situation. A&M coming off the loss definitely will have them be a little bit more fired up than they would have been if they were coming off a win, which I do think plays a little bit into it. So I think it will be a tiny bit closer, you know, in that first half than I was potentially originally expecting. But I think that if Alabama can rebound the ball and, you know, do what they do best, I think the efficiency numbers, I think A&M is one of the best examples of the efficiency numbers will probably win out. They just have to do a good job on the glass. So that's my prediction on the game. Um, my thread's going to come out on Friday. Um, I'm going to look at putting out the threads the day before the game instead of the morning of. So just a heads up, if you're interested in reading the threads, you can either follow me at Twitter. Um, linked in, It'll be linked in the description, and it, you, know, you can see in the, the foot below me as well as all threads get posted here on Substack or on my Substack if you're watching on YouTube or somewhere else. So follow along on Substack or on Twitter if you're interested in the pregame thread. And then there will be a postgame to follow on Substack as well. So I want, want to include one last bit, and this is straying a little bit from basketball, even though we are in the middle of basketball season, but I wanted to hit, talk a little bit about the football team because we've had some news. You know, a month ago, Kalen DeBoer, a little over a month ago, Kalen DeBoer gets announced as the new head coach at Alabama, and the assumption when all of that comes out is that Ryan Grubb, his offensive coordinator, and Scott Huff, his O-lines coach, along with Sheridan, the tight ends coach, and um, a few other guys were all going to join him from Washington. And that was originally the case. All of those guys had been announced as coordinators or as position coaches, and they were all being announced as they were absolutely following him. Gillespie and Freddie Roach both stayed on staff from the Nick Saban era, and, you know, we had Kane Womack leave South Alabama, so all of the staff was coming together, and the assumption was that Ryan Grubb was going to be the offensive coordinator. Even as late as last Tuesday, Ryan Grubb, or, or last Wednesday, I'm sorry, Ryan Grubb was at the Red Elephants Club on National Signing Day speaking to a group of boosters and said, I will be your next offensive coordinator. However, things change, and Ryan Grubb has been announced as the Seattle Seahawks' new offensive coordinator. So he's staying in Seattle, moving from the Huskies, I guess the brief stint in Alabama, and now is going to be the Seattle Seahawks' offensive coordinator. With him, he is taking Scott Huff, the offensive line coach, that um, coached the Joe Moore winning, winning offensive line. So there's a few spots on staff now for, for DeBoer to fill. The one that he has filled by the looks of it, and this is coming out earlier today, so things can change as always happens in the coaching realm, but from all the reporting that has come out today, it looks like Nick Sheridan, that was the tight ends coach at Washington and has been with DeBoer um, since his days at Indiana, um, Nick Sheridan is going to be the offensive coordinator um, for Kalen DeBoer. So Nick Sheridan was previously announced as the tight ends coach. Sounds like he's going to take over the offensive coordinator duties. 
the wide receivers coach is going to take over. Uh, Jamarcus Shepard is going to take over some additional offensive duties that hasn't been announced as to what type of duties those are going to be, but he's going to be taking over wide receiver and some additional duties. And there's still some new coaches now to be announced. So there's an offensive line coach still to be announced. There's now another um, spot available for assistant coaches. So be on the lookout for that. I'm happy to cover those whenever those come out. And then my plan is once the full coaching staff is fully set, I want to have a guest on, whether it be a reporter or somebody that covers the football team a little bit more closely than I do, to talk X's and O's and what each coach, you know, what they like or don't like about each coach, because I think that that's something that, you know, we need to get to know the new staff. You know, with Saban, there was a level of trust that automatically included that even if he brought in a guy that you maybe didn't suspect to be the Alabama style, and I'm going to use Tommy Reese as an example, you're like, well, if Nick Saban's going to hire him, then I have to give him faith. And I'm not going to say that we shouldn't do that to, to Kalen DeBoer because I think that's absolutely the case. If you're going to trust him to run your school and your program, then you should absolutely trust him to make the coaching hires. However, these are just coaches that we don't know. So I am curious to talk to somebody and have them talk through, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly with some of these coaches and what to look forward to because I think that we've hired some really, really good coaches um, there have been a lot of really big things coming out. You know, if you follow on Twitter or, you know, read any places, a lot of p people have thought really highly of the hires that um, that DeBoer has made to this point. I think those included Grubb and Huff. So now I'm curious to see how that changes with Sheridan being the new offensive coordinator and then potentially whoever ends up getting hired for the O-lines coach. So that's something really to keep in mind. And like I said, I will be covering it in more detail when more of that comes out. But for now, we're in basketball season with baseball season soon to tip off and softball getting to an undefeated start. So if you are interested in anything else Alabama-related, please feel free to drop it in the comments. Shoot me a message on Twitter, you know, however you feel like getting in contact. And if you're interested in hearing any more information or having me doing any research, then please follow along. I did drop a, an article kind of a, as a look back to Nick Saban's career, and not just his career on the football field, but kind of what he did for the Tuscaloosa community. For anybody that doesn't know, I do live in Tuscaloosa now and, you know, have been around the state of Alabama my entire life. And what Nick Saban did post April 27th, the tornadoes that came through in 2011, was nothing short of remarkable. And so I, you know, just felt like I needed to give him his flowers and look back at, you know, what he meant to Tuscaloosa and Alabama as a whole. You know, there are some football things mentioned in there, but just wanted to, you know, give a shout out to the GOAT because, at the end of the day, many people wouldn't be at this university without him, and I don't think that the that the school and the city and everything in this situation would not be in the same place that it is if Nick Saban had not been the coach, you know, and done the things that he did while he was here on campus. So, just wanted to give a shout out to the goat. Um, I did that over on Substack, so that's released. If anybody else is interested in any other longer form articles, I'm gonna try to put those out as often as I can. Um, in between all of the pregame, postgame stuff. Um, I do plan to follow the team, you know, during any March Madness stuff. So just keep in mind with that. And then keep in mind that the next episode for this is probably going to be recorded on Sunday, maybe a little bit shorter episode, but it'll be a little bit of a breakdown of the 
Uh, Sunday, Monday, it'll be a breakdown of the Texas A&M game and then a look forward to the Florida game. So if you're interested in more Alabama basketball content or anything Alabama athletics related, please follow along and stay connected, subscribe to the channel. And as always, thank you so much for watching. <laughs>